Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. Believe it or not, this is now our sixth lesson in our 10-week series Bible study on the Creed. We've spoken in the first week about why the Creed exists at all. Uh, The Creed is a succinct summary of the basic content of our faith, who Christ is and what he taught. Um, In the second week, we talked about the existence of God. Why do we believe that God exists and what you know, what, is, what do Christians mean by God? What are they referring to? In the third week, we spoke about the problem of evil, which is perhaps one of the most important and commonest philosophical arguments brought against the existence of God. Why is there evil in the world if God exists? In the fourth week, we moved into the discussion about the person of Christ, and we spoke about Christ with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, The things that Christ says, the way that he speaks, the the things that he does, the authority that he takes on for himself uh, suggest that he is not only one of us as a human being, but he also comes from the, you know, from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction, right? We remember that, that distinction that we talked about. And then last week, we spoke about the mediation of Christ. Salvation uh, salvation, uh, is brought by Christ, and Christ mediates this salvation in two ways. On the one hand, he brings us things that only God can give us, such as forgiveness of sins, healing, and so on. And on the other hand, he brings to God things that we owed him, such as obedience and faithfulness and so on. So Christ mediates our salvation in two ways. He brings the things of God to man, and he brings the things of man to God, as Athanasius said. Now today, we are going to be talking about the next important thing that the creed says about Christ, which is that he suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ um, and we will also, towards the end, make a connection to our own resurrection. Now, one of the interesting things about the resurrection of Christ is that if there is one doctrine that in the Bible is an absolute non-negotiable, that cannot be denied without simply you know, having jumped off the ship of Christianity altogether. It's the resurrection. Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, some people in that church were saying that there is no resurrection. Very strange. Because that church was formed by Paul preaching the resurrection of Christ, and then some people come into the church and say, ah, there's no resurrection. So it's very strange sometimes how, uh, you know, people will be a part of the church, but have interests that are totally contrary to what the church teaches, and they express their opinions, and it just causes trouble. So that's what was happening. And Paul tells those people, how can you say that there is no resurrection of Christ or there is no resurrection if Christ was resurrected? On the other hand, if there is no resurrection, then neither was Christ resurrected. And you're wasting your time trusting in Christ because he's dead and gone. He cannot help you. This is interesting. A lot of people will feel a sort of an attraction to Christ. They like him. He's a nice guy. He's loving. They have, you know, these um, sort of stereotypical images in their mind of what Christ is like, Um, but they don't believe that he resurrected from the dead. He died and that was the end of it. You know, maybe his soul went off to heaven or something with the souls of all other good human beings, but he's not resurrected from the dead. 
They don't believe that. The denial of the resurrection of the dead keeps a distance between you and Christ. Denying that Christ was resurrected from the dead puts him at a distance. So now he's just one more person like the rest of us who did some good things. You should take you know, what he says into consideration, but he's gone. And you're left to decide the course of your life for yourself. On the other hand, if Christ is resurrected from the dead, then there is no avoiding him. I can avoid dead people, right? My grandmother is dead. I can avoid her. If she, if she, if she didn't like me, if she thought that I, my life should have gone a certain way, well, she's not here anymore to tell me what to do. But if Christ is resurrected from the dead, he's here to tell me what to do. He's here to demand a response from me. So the resurrection of Christ is critically important because it means that Christ is not simply one more person who has disappeared into the, you know, flown away with the sands of time. He is alive today as he was before he died. And this means that today also he can make a claim on people and we have to respond to him. The resurrection of Christ is extremely important for this reason. Um, and for that reason also, people resist it. The, 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 the higher the stakes of a claim, the more people will resist it. If I told you, for example, that, um, you know, if I told you, for example, that your car is in the parking lot, uh, you would probably say, yeah, you're probably right about that. But if I were to tell you, for example, that someone is in the parking lot trying to break into your car or that I'm going to steal your car unless you give me your keys or if I make some claim with higher stakes, you're going to resist it. When people say that Christ raised from the dead and that all human beings now owe allegiance to him because God has established him as the judge of the earth, that's a claim with high stakes. If I say no to Christ and he is still alive or if he is alive again, then I'm in trouble. Only if Christ is dead and buried can I say no to him without consequence. But if Christ is alive and he demands a yes or a no from me, then the stakes are high. So people will resist the idea of the resurrection of Christ. They will positively resist it. They don't believe it. So what I want to do in this brief lecture is to discuss why did the Christians say that Christ was resurrected from the dead? Because people will make up all kinds of stories. They will say, for example, that... In the ancient world, there were all these pre-existing mythologies about gods dying and rising, you know, as a symbol of the seasons. We go from winter to spring and so on. They'll say, this is all just mythology. And the disciples just borrowed these mythologies and made up the story about Christ, you know, rising from the dead. Or some of them will say that they, their belief in Christ was so strong and they were so disillusioned when he was killed by the Romans that... You know, they hallucinated. They wanted something to be true really badly. And so they came up with these hallucinations and then they believed, oh, wow, Christ really is alive again. And they started to preach the, the gospel to people that way. What I want to try to argue today is that a careful consideration of the evidence that we have shows that the resurrection of Christ is not something that the apostles made up. It's not a hallucination. They were not desperate to believe it and that's why they made it up. They really did see Christ. They really did sit down and eat with him. They really did see the food disappearing off of his plate and the wine in his glass lowering in level. They really did see Christ. And so I'm going to try to present very briefly uh, certain evidences that we have uh, for understanding the apostolic claim of the resurrection of Christ. One of the most important pieces of evidence, there are actually, I think, um, three pieces of evidence that I'm going to talk about today. There's the empty tomb, there's the appearances to the disciples, and then there's the appearance to Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. Okay, so those are three categories we're going to cover. The empty tomb, 
the appearances to the disciples, and then the appearance to Saul, who later became Paul the Apostle, or was later known as Paul the Apostle. The first evidence is the empty tomb. If we read very carefully the Gospels and their story about how Christ died, they go out of their way to make sure that they mention that people knew both that Christ had died and where he was buried. They know where he died. It's not as if Christ was taken away from them and there was nobody there, right? Christ, they knew where Christ died and they also knew where he was buried. So, for example, if we read in um, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15. Let's read together the Gospel according to Mark, beginning from verse 40 of chapter 15. Some women were watching from a distance. Okay, this is Christ on the cross. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead because normally a crucifixion is not over in a day. You would languish on the cross for two, three, four days. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph took some linen, brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that they saw where he was laid? Because the next morning, they are going to go with spices and herbs and special linens in order to dress the body of Jesus. But when they go there, they find a tomb that's empty. So here's the initial point. It's not enough simply to say, well, we went looking in Jesus' tomb and there was no body there. Therefore, he's raised from the dead. He's somewhere, right? Because the obvious answer is maybe you went to the wrong tomb. That's an obvious answer. So, therefore, Mark is very clear. They did not go to the wrong tomb because they saw where the body was laid. They saw Joseph of Arimathea take the body and put it in a specific tomb. So they knew where he was. There's another thing to notice here. If you were making up a story... All right. If you were just inventing a story about a resurrection and you were not necessarily like an expert, you know, literary, uh, um, uh, an expert in literature, you were not a, a novelist or something by trade, you were just some Joe Schmo who wanted to tell a story, probably you would not come up with names of people that, you know, are, are so normal and ordinary. You would probably say one person saw this happening and then another person took him there and so on. Right. If I were making up a story, if I were... Um, communicating something to you that I, was, that I witnessed but that I was far away from, I would not use specific names. I wouldn't mention who it was that did this, this, and that. I would just say, oh, some guy cut me off on the freeway today. Uh, someone in the office said something funny at a meeting this morning and so on. But notice what Mark does. He gives names of very specific people. Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. So that means that Mary... Everybody in the first century was named Mary. This was the most common name among all the, all the names of women in, in Palestine. 
So she specify, here he specifies which Mary this is, the mother of James and Joseph. All right, if you are making up a story, this is an irrelevant detail. You would not need to mention whose mother she is. You would just say Mary. But if you're talking about a real person who can be distinguished from other real people and who your audience you know, might have some awareness of, you could say, oh, it was Mary, the mother of Joseph and, uh, and of James the Younger. Just like I might say it was Stephen, not you know, Dr. Nemesh, but Canon Dart, right? Because they're both named Stephen. So we see that Mark, the way that he tells this story, he's talking about real people that could have been identified. You could have gone to them and talked to them and say, hey, did what Mark write about, is what Mark wrote about you true? He also closes off avenues of objection, right? He's, he's very careful. He says, the women saw where Jesus was laid. They did not go to just any old tomb and assume that it was Jesus's. They knew where he was laid because they saw Joseph of Arimathea take the body there. And then what happens? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? There was a big stone in the front of it and they're not there yet. And they're thinking, how are they going to open you know, the tomb for us? Because there's a big stone. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So this is an interesting sight. They go to the tomb. They know where he was because they saw Joseph of Arimathea lay the body there. Mary and the other Mary. Um, And when they get there, the tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. And there's this figure wearing white clothes in there saying, Jesus is not here. He's risen from the dead. He'll meet you guys in Galilee. So this is the first of the, the pieces of evidence, the critical pieces of evidence. The tomb was empty. They knew where Jesus's tomb was. They knew that there was a big rock in front of it and the tomb was empty. Now, some people make up the story about how Jesus was not actually dead on the cross, but he was just incredibly capacitated uh, and he must have woken up while he was in the tomb. And he, you know, somehow after receiving the beating of a lifetime and having been hung on wood, you know, during the hot of the day, he had enough strength to roll a massive rock and to escape from the tomb somewhere. Um, That seems highly unlikely because Jesus was for all intents and purposes, everybody else, it seemed like he was dead, right? He probably was dead. So for that reason, he could not have simply woken up in the, um, in the tomb and drank some Gatorade and replenished his strength and pushed the stone away and, and escaped. No, he was dead. This is impossible. But when they get there, let me ask you a question. If you were to go to the tombstones of your parents or your family members, people who you saw buried and put in the ground and you were to you know, take out the coffin and open it up, what would you see in there? You see bones. When they went to Christ's tomb, they saw nothing in there. They saw some linens folded up and put on the, you know, where the body was laid, and there was no one there. So imagine this, that you know someone has died. You've seen him dying. You saw him put away in the tomb, and when you go to the next morning, it's empty, and this figure dressed in white tells you he's risen, he's going to meet you in Galilee. This is critical. The empty tomb is one of the most important pieces of evidence in favor of the Christian teaching. Now, here's the, the kicker. Here's a really important point. The Jews in that time also admitted that the tomb was empty. If we open up to Matthew chapter 28. 
Let's read from verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum, a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Okay, Matthew wrote his gospel probably, scholars say that he wrote probably around the year 70 or 80. Okay, so this is about 40 years later. He's writing this gospel. They say that he, the tradition says that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew or in Aramaic first, and it was later translated into Greek. Uh, So Matthew seems to have been a part of some very tightly knit Jewish Christian community. And he would have known what the Jews were saying, right? He probably was um, in the area of Jerusalem or in some place where there were a lot of Jews. And he says, the Jews, even to this day, say that the disciples of Christ stole his body. Now, if they stole his body, that means that the tomb is empty. Okay, so the Jews also recognized that the tomb of Christ was empty. The Christian disciples, the disciples of Jesus said, no, he was resurrected from the dead. The, the, um, the Jews, on the other hand, said, no, the tomb is empty. We can't deny that. If the tomb weren't empty, we could just go and show everybody the body there. The tomb is empty. We can't deny that. But you guys must have stole the body. So this is a critical piece of evidence. The fact that the tomb is empty. It's something to which all the Gospels bear witness. Every single Gospel has this mention of the tomb narrative, where they go to the tomb and there's nobody there. And even the enemies of the earliest Christians, the people who denied their claim, had to admit this piece of evidence. Right? They came up with a counter-explanation. They said, no, the tomb is empty, but you guys stole, uh, you guys stole the body. So the empty tomb is a critically important piece of evidence. This is something that is almost undeniable. Christ's tomb was empty. They knew where he was buried. When they went there the next morning, he was not there. And even the enemies of the Christians, the Jews who refused to believe in Christ, they said, yeah, the tomb is empty, but it's because the disciples stole the body. So everybody at the very least agrees about the empty tomb. And it's, this is a highly significant piece of evidence because if you and the people that you radically disagree with can at least agree about one thing, that shows that it's likely true. <laughs> If you ever had a disagreement between people where they don't agree on one point at all, there's not one common point between them, then who knows what the truth of the matter might be. But if you can at least both agree on one point, that shows that it's likely true. The Christians and their enemies also believed, also admitted, they agreed on the point of the empty tomb. So this shows that Christ's tomb is empty. That much is almost undeniable. Christ's tomb, when they went there, the morning, you know, two days after the crucifixion, it was empty. There was nobody there. And this is something that, um, this is something that uh, even the enemies of the Christians admitted. Now, beyond the empty tomb, if their empty tomb was all that there was, if it was just an empty tomb and some, you know, strange figure dressed in white saying that Christ had risen from the dead, that might not be very strong evidence. It's possible, but it's not very strong evidence. And so on top of that, there are also other appearances that Christ made specifically to his disciples. He shows himself to them. So, for example, we can read in Luke chapter 24. Here is the famous passage. So Luke tells the story like this. The women go to the tomb of Jesus. There's nobody there. 
The angel tells them, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's going to meet you guys in Galilee. They go back to the disciples. The disciples tell them, nah, those are tall tales. Peter goes to the, to the tomb. He also sees it empty. So he starts to wonder. Now, there are these other two d- disciples who were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I'm reading from verse 13. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. These are disciples of Christ, right? So they followed Jesus. They saw him crucified. They were very down and depressed. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you, the o- are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here these days? What things? Now notice, once more, if Luke were making this story up, he would not need to provide names for these characters. He names one of them Cleopas because he knows Cleopas is the source of the story. He was the one telling the story. Right? If I were to tell you something happened you know, at Walmart or whatever... Uh, yesterday, I don't have to tell names. I can just mention some people there. Maybe I'm telling the truth, maybe I'm not. But if I give you a name, I also give you a way of proving me wrong because you can consult with the person that I'm talking about. If I said that Raymond was at Walmart yesterday and he was buying a massive TV, you can ask Raymond if it's true or not. By the way, Raymond, congratulations on the wedding. I haven't got the chance to tell you yet. You know, if I mention a name, I can be falsified. You can test what I'm saying. Luke mentions Cleopas. It's almost as if he's daring people. If you disagree with me, go talk to Cleopas. He'll tell you what I'm saying is true. So Cleopas continues. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that he had, they had seen a vision of angels while he, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, the, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. It's getting dark out. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They were asking each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen as appeared to Simon. Then the two had told, so interestingly enough, Christ had appeared to Simon in the meantime. All right, so when these two had left from Jerusalem, Jesus did not yet appear to Peter, Simon. But and by the time they returned, Jesus had appeared to Simon. Then the two had told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. 
He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch, and, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So notice, Christ does not just rise out of the tomb and disappear into the ether, never to be seen again. He appears to his disciples on multiple occasions. He shows up to these two disciples on their way to Emmaus. He shows up again to Simon in the meantime. And he also appears to all the disciples gathered together. Now, there's something strange about these appearances. He's there, and yet at the same time, he doesn't seem subject to the same physical limitations that we have, right? He's there, and all of a sudden, he disappears. He is with the 12, and they don't believe it. He just appears suddenly in the room. Somehow, he's there without their noticing it. But he's not a phantom. He says, look, touch me. You can feel that I'm real. Give me some food. You, can, you know, if he were a phantom, would you just see like the food floating in midair and then it drops down into the ground? No, he, he, the food disappeared. He ate it and the wine from the glass disappeared. And this is a point that Peter also in the various sermons in the Acts of the Apostles is going to raise again and again and again. He's going to say Christ was raised from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. And we know this because we sat down and we ate with him. His resurrection is not merely his, you know, coming back as a ghost. He has a real human body like ours that eats and drinks and can move around from place to place. And if you, you, know, if you were to touch it, you could feel it. It's, it's strong. It resists, you know, it resists your efforts of, uh, of penetration. So he has a real body. He's resurrected and he eats and drinks with them. These appearances to the disciples are another very important piece of evidence. Now, this can be hard to believe. All right, if all this were just a story, right? Just because somebody tells me something doesn't mean I believe them. I am not so, <laughs> I am not so skeptical. I, I am not so, you know, naive and credulous that I would believe just anything a person tells me. I, am, I have a natural amount of skepticism also. But there are limits to the skepticism that you can come up with, right? You, you cannot be infinitely skeptical of a person. Imagine if you were to go to, a, for example, um, you know, like a government office, and you were to try to prove your identity because you, get, you need to get some new documentation and you provide a driver's license, you provide a passport, you provide a, you provide a, a birth certificate, you provide you know, bills with your name on them that are sent to the house that appears on your driver's license and so on. And you provide all this documentation, but the person behind the counter still says, I don't know, I don't believe that it's you. Right? There are limits to the, 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 you know, the reasonableness of your skepticism. If all, there were, if all that was there was the empty tomb, okay, who knows what happened? If all that we had was just the stories of the apostles, you know, maybe you know, people say that they were abducted by aliens. Who can know? But we have both pieces of evidence. We have not only the testimony of the apostles, but also an empty tomb, and even the people who disagree with the apostles admit that the tomb is empty. So you can see now that there are multiple lines of evidence that are converging and mutually reinforcing each other. The empty tomb reinforces the, the testimony of the apostles. And the testimony of the apostles reinforces the empty tomb, not to mention the fact that the enemies of the apostles also admit this point. So Christ appeared to these people. He not only, you know, uh, escaped the grave and disappeared off into the ether, but he also appeared to these people. He showed himself to them. He ate food with them, drank wine with them, sat down at the table with them. 
He appears on different occasions. So this is not the only time that he appears to them. In the Gospel according to John, for example, this meeting occurs. Thomas is not there. When Thomas hears about it later, he says, unless I put my hands in the wound, you know, unless I put my fingers in his wounds, on his hands, on his side, I'm not going to believe. So Christ later appears to him and he says, look, here, this is where they drove the nails. This is where the spear pierced me. You can put your finger in there. And Thomas then believes and he says, my Lord and my God. So Christ appeared to his disciples multiple times, not only on these occasions. And in the, the gospel according to John, it ends fabulously. I think the ending of the gospel according to John is very, uh, is very poignant and artistic. Peter and Christ are sitting on the side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. Some people are fishing. Peter got done fishing. He, he cooks some fish for Jesus. They're eating around the campfire. And Jesus asked him, do you love me? Because, of course, Peter had denied him. And then after they have that discussion, they get up and they start walking. And in my mind, it's almost like the ending of a movie. You know, you have Peter and Christ walking along the beach and John is not very far away from them, walking from behind them. And Peter says, well, what about that guy? And Christ says, don't worry about that. That's my business. The ending is fabulous. It's it lit, as, as a work of literary art, it's a beautiful ending for the, for the gospel. But my point is this. There was not just one appearance to the disciples. It's not as if the disciples simply had a vision of Christ and then they went off and started preaching the gospel. That's not what they actually tell us happened. They had multiple appearances of Christ from the day of his resurrection until Pentecost or until Ascension, rather. At the Ascension, he disappears and he, he does not come back like that. Um, but in that period, from between the resurrection and the Ascension, how many days is that? How many days between Ascension and, or resurrection and Ascension? 40 days. 40 days! Repeated appearances to these disciples, to those disciples, sitting down and teaching them, helping them to understand the scriptures. So Christ appeared to them again and again and again, and he would eat and drink with them. So we can see then that the, the claim of the apostles is not just to a one-time vision. They saw him again and again and again, and they learned from him, and they studied under him. They continued to study under him, and he ate food with them. And of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 even mentions that there was an occasion in which Christ appeared to 500 people at once. And some of those 500 people were still alive when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians around the year 50 or 60 or so. So 30 years later, there were still, out of this group of 500 people, there were still people alive in Paul's time. And if you wanted to, you could go and talk to them and ask them, did you see Christ? And they would say, yes. So we have the empty tomb. We have the appearances to the disciples, but there is one more appearance that's very significant. There is also the appearance to Saul. Right, let's open up to Acts chapter 9. So immediately before this, Stephen the proto-martyr, was killed. Saul was there at the, the stoning to death of Stephen, all right, and he approved of what was happening. That began some persecutions in Jerusalem which sent the Christians going in every which direction. That is how Philip, for example, ended up with the Ethiopian, right? Because they, they had scattered. The Christians are scattered because of the persecutions. They go in various places. Saul, in the meantime, according to Luke in chapter 9, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, 
whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And of course, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Christ appears to him and says, you have to take in this guy, Saul. Uh, I have to show him how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias says, Lord, you know, imagine, you know, what's the name? Imagine, you know, Christ appeared to you and said, you have to take in Osama bin Laden into your home, right? Because I have to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. You're going to say, Lord, are you sure you have the right guy? This guy hates us. Why him? I have to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name, right? So Paul is like, maybe he was not quite Osama bin Laden. He clearly was zealous, but he need not have been some, you know, notorious, you know, world-famous persecutor of Christians. But at the very least, Christians knew about him, and they did not like him. But this Saul, who hated Christians, who was breathing breathing murderous threats against them, who wanted to get approval from the council so that he can go round up Christians in other places, it's it's a far walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. Right, they are not nearby. That's like you know, asking the Phoenix City Council if you can go all the way into Flagstaff or to go all the way into Yuma or to go all the way into Blythe or Indio or some of these Californian cities to bring Christians back here. Right? That shows that you hate them. Why do you want to go that far? Why, why do you care so much about this? You hate. So Paul, hate, Paul, before he became a Christian, he hated the church. And yet on the way to commit his acts of hate and to round up Christians and to punish them and to persecute them, Christ appears to him. Now, if there's one person who had every reason in the world not to believe that Christ was resurrected, if there's one person who would not make up a story like this, it was Saul. If there's one person whom you could not accuse of desperation and disappointment because Christ was crucified, and so therefore he had to have hallucinated this, he had to have come up with this on his own because he just wanted so desperately Christ to be, or Jesus to be the Messiah. If there's one person that's not true of, it was Saul. But at the same time, Saul also converts to Christ and uh, Christ appears to him on the way to Damascus. So the appearance of Christ to Saul is another extremely important and critical piece of evidence. This is the sort of thing that Saul, in his right mind, never would have made up on his own. He never would have wanted this to be true because he hated the Christians. And yet this person claims that Christ appeared to me. Right? If Osama bin Laden claimed that Christ had appeared to him, and he totally reverts his life, and he goes preaching the gospel of Christ everywhere. And, you know, you might wonder, oh, he's, he's, he's got something to win. He's doing this for some sort of reason. And he receives persecution and beating after beating. He's thrown off of a cliff. He's nearly stoned to death. He's shipwrecked. He gives up all of his money. He works with his hands in order to support his own ministry. He accepts money from no one, and he just plants churches everywhere. And then finally, in the end, he goes and is happily, you know, decapitated for the faith. If that happened to Osama bin Laden. That's probably what it was like for these people to hear that Saul had converted to Christianity and that he was now ready to give his entire life in the, in Christ, for, for the pursuit of Christ. This sort of thing doesn't happen unless you have a, a radical life-changing experience. 
What sort of experience is radical enough and life-changing enough to turn a terrorist into an evangelist? If Christ were to appear to you, that would be one such thing. Christ appeared to Saul. It changed him. He became a totally different person after that. He was utterly different from the sort of person that he was before. He began to think in utterly new categories. He no longer had the same concerns that he did before. He was a radically different person. Christ changed Saul into basically a terrorist and a Christian hunter into a servant of Christ and an apostle. So this is yet another piece of evidence which very strongly, very strongly suggests that Christ indeed was risen from the dead. Now, there are all sorts of other evidences that we can go over here. All right. There is the fact, for example, that preaching Christ, people received the Holy Spirit. If Christ were dead and he were just some nobody, he died and disappeared. You cannot go and preach Moses Maimonides to people and people will receive the Holy Spirit. Maimonides is is dead. You cannot go and preach Abraham. You cannot go and preach Moses. They would not receive the Holy Spirit that way. And yet at the preaching of Christ, people received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in other languages. They were healed. They became radically different persons. The power and vitality of the name of Christ shows also that he's a living being. He's not dead. He's not gone forever. He's not just one more historical figure that we study out of curiosity. He is a living person who is capable of acting right here and right now if we believe in him. So there are very many other pieces of evidence that we could go over, but this is the, these, are three that I wanted to, these are three that I wanted to emphasize. On the one hand, there's the empty tomb. All right, this much at least, even the enemies of the Christians admitted to. Then there are the appearances to the disciples. Not one appearance, not an appearance in, you know, conditions of uncertainty. You know, it's not that it was foggy outside and they saw a shadow in the tree that looked kind of like Christ. They saw him face to face. They touched him with his hands. They saw him. They ate food with him. They saw the wine in the glass gradually drop as they were sitting at the table. And then finally, on top of the, the appearances to the disciples, which were multiple and concrete and, and palpable, There is also the appearance to Saul of Tarsus, who hated Christians, who wanted to kill them, who wanted to do away with them, who wanted to be freed of this scourge, and yet he converts to Christ, and he says that Christ appeared to me also. So we have here three very critical, very important pieces of evidence that show that the resurrection is not a fairy tale. It's not a story that people made up out of desperation. Um, It's not something that they came up with simply because they were so desperate to believe. They wanted Jesus desperately to be the Messiah, and when he was killed. They just could not accept the truth. They couldn't face the facts. And so they made up the story about a resurrection. They hallucinated him. That does not explain the facts. The actual facts of the matter are different. Sometimes you will hear people saying, you know, about the resurrection, who knows, who can really tell? Maybe the apostles wanted to, you know, come up with some story so they would be world famous. Maybe they, you know, maybe they were just really desperate to to see that Christ was the Messiah. And so they hallucinated him. If you pay close attention to what the apostles actually say, the story is nothing like that. Paying close attention to the way that they talk about their appearances, uh, experiences with Jesus after his resurrection, the conditions in which the resurrection appearances took place. Uh, If you pay close attention to all that, you'll see it's nothing like that. Those stories don't come up. Those hypotheses are not appropriate. They really did see Christ on numerous occasions after he had risen from the dead. They sat down, they learned from him. He taught them the scriptures. They ate food and they drank wine with him. So... You know, if I were to sit down at the table with somebody and eat food and drink with him, that's enough proof for me that this person is alive. It should also be enough proof for us that Christ is alive, because this is exactly what the apostles did. 
Now, why does Christ have to resurrect? Here's an interesting question. Why does Christ have to resurrect? Well, Peter says, according to the scriptures. There is not time to get into this point. This would be a discussion for another class. But I think it is important to note that the doctrine of the resurrection teaches us something about this world. The doctrine of the resurrection teaches us that this world is important. It matters very much to God. And what God wants is to take this world, which is deficient and broken in various ways, and to restore it. And the the resurrection of Christ is basically like the down payment on the restoration of the whole world. All right, Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Adam sinned, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So this is the, this is the metaphor that, um, not quite a metaphor, this is the analogy that Paul gives us. On the one hand, Adam commits a sin and it brings death and destruction into the world. Things go haywire. On the other hand, Christ comes into the world and he brings life. Because in Christ, everybody, or in Adam, everyone dies, Christ brings resurrection and life for everybody. So we see that Christ basically embodies in his own person the restoration, the resurrection, the, the repair, so to speak, that awaits this entire creation. We also are not going to die and then our souls are going to go into heaven and then we will just enjoy this disembodied bliss you know, for all of eternity. That's not the picture at all that the Bible presents. The Bible talks about a resurrection. We will be resurrected into a body like this one. Maybe it'll look like this. Maybe it'll look better. I'm not sure. Um, and we'll actually have bodies. We will live as embodied human creatures. In Revelation, for example, there's the image of the heavenly Jerusalem descending out of the new heaven into the earth. And this heavenly Jerusalem is the church. It's Christ's bride. Never in the, in, the, in the Bible is there this idea that the permanent destiny of the human being is this disembodied state of just pure contemplation or something like that. There is a doctrine of the resurrection. We are go- these bodies which we are at the end of the day. You know, who can be separated from this body? I feel that. That's me. This is something happening to me. We identify ourselves so closely with these bodies. These bodies, which we are, are going to be resurrected. Like Paul says, they're sown in corruption and they're raised in incorruption. They're sown in weakness and they're going to be raised in strength. Right now, we are extremely weak. Right now, there are limits to what we can do. Right now, we depend on God. We have perhaps disabilities or problems that afflict us every day. But... God wants to restore this creation. And this restoration will take place at the resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ is kind of like a foretaste of that. It's a foreshadowing of what awaits this entire world. Now, of course, the resurrection, I I don't mean to suggest that the resurrection is going to be exactly the same for everybody because Christ says that some will be resurrected to eternal life and some people to condemnation and to shame. And that's what also Daniel says in the Old Testament. So this is not to say that because Christ is resurrected, therefore everybody is going to enjoy eternal salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But it is true that God is not going to give up on these bodies that we have and this world that he's created. He wants to restore it. And Christ's resurrection is the beginning of that restoration. Like Paul says, he's the first fruits. He's the first 
the first foretaste of a restoration and a resurrection that awaits all of us also and awaits uh, this created order. So that means, for example, that when we die, we don't disappear into nothingness. Neither do we go off into some place and stay there forever. Right? Theologians disagree about the nature of what's called the intermediate state. Uh, traditionally, the majority of Christians have believed that after death and before the resurrection, your soul continues to exist. You do not utterly go into non-consciousness or non-existence. Your souls continue to exist. Um, depending on the sort of life that you lived on earth and whether you died reconciled to God, you can exist in a state of bliss or you can exist in a state of torment. And eventually at the resurrection, your soul is reunited with your body. Some theologians also say that there is no intermediate state. When you die, that's it. There's no consciousness after death. You go into a sleep, so to speak. And at the resurrection, you regain consciousness. This is a controverted issue. The majority position is that there is an intermediate state and that you do retain consciousness. The minority position, I'm not sure that I buy it, but I have friends who believe this and, you know, um, it's, it's not totally unfounded. Uh, the minority position says that there is no consciousness immediately after death. You die, you go into a sleep, uh, and then you come back alive at the resurrection. Uh, so I don't mean to comment on that issue. I'm, I, I don't say anything about that. My only point is that, according to the Bible, when we die, our soul, if it does separate from our body, does not stay that way forever. It's not intended to stay that way forever. We have to live in these bodies. This is the normal way for us to live as human beings, as material embodied creatures of God. And God does not give us up. He doesn't give up on us simply because we've fallen into sin, simply because we've turned away from him. Instead, he comes into this world in Jesus Christ. He makes atonement for our sins. He dies for our sins. And he resurrects in order to promise us also that we will be resurrected. Christ is resurrected as the first fruits. We also will be resurrected and we will enjoy eternity with Christ if in this life we love him and we submit to him. Thank you.